0: Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Tric and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. On November 9th, Norwegian researchers and politicians came together to celebrate the 20th anniversary of UN Security Council Resolution 1325. They also discussed the way forward, especially in light of Norway's position on the Security Council starting in January 2021. The third and final conversation of the day featured Norwegian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Ina eriksson Soreda and former Deputy Prime Minister of Sweden and Minister for Nordic Cooperation, Margot Wallström. The discussion also featured PRIO Deputy Director and Director of the PRIO Centre for Gender, Peace and Security, Torun Trigestad, as well as PRIO Senior Researcher and Gender Research Group Coordinator, Louise Olsen. It's a different format from our usual episodes and a little bit longer, but I think you'll like it.
1: It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you all to this live-streamed event from the beautiful Grand Ola of the University of Oslo. My name is Turin Tryggestan and I'm the director of the Prio Center on Gender, Peace and Security at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo. And I will be your host for the next hour, during which we will discuss the topic Champions of Women, Peace and Security – Norway and Sweden on the UN Security Council. As probably most of you know by now, Norway will join the UN Security Council as of 1st January 2021 as an elected member. and Sweden, they recently served on the council as elected member during the period 2017 to 2018. Both countries are also well known internationally as champions of women, peace and security. So who are more well-placed to discuss this topic than the foreign minister of Norway, Ine Maria Eriksen Søreide, and Margot Wallström, the former uh, minister of foreign affairs of Sweden. And on video link, we will bring in uh, Margot Wallström soon from her home in Sweden. A few words about this event before we start. It forms part of the national commemoration here in Norway of the 20th anniversary of UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security, which was adopted in October 2000. The co-organizers of this event event is FOCUS, Forum for Women and Development, the Centre for Gender Research at the University in Oslo, the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Prio Centre on Gender, Peace and Security. We started out this morning with a panel of four ministers and one parliamentarian, and civil society representatives discussing Norway's efforts at implementing the Women, Peace and Security agenda at home and abroad. The opening panel was then followed by a panel with scholars and practitioners and activists discussing emerging issues, new voices, an intergenerational and intersectional approach to Women, Peace and Security. For those of you interested in any of these previous panels, or if you want to listen in to this conversation later on, Note that there will be recordings available shortly from the PRIO events page. Now, before I give the floor to our two prominent guests, I would like to introduce my colleague, Dr. Louise Olson, senior researcher at PRIO, who will give us a brief introduction to today's topic based on a research project that she has led on the role and impact of elected members of the UN Security Council. Louise, please, the floor is yours.
2: Thank you, Turin. So in early 1999, I got my first job, which was to be a research assistant in a project focusing on gender equality aspects of UN peacekeeping operations. It was funded by the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Sweden, and it was part of a larger UN project uh, led by the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations in New York. Sweden had at that time just come out of the Security Council and was concerned that the project in the UN was not moving forward. This was a concern that they shared with the UN, and as a consequence, part of the project was actually moved to Uppsala University, uh, where we did a first workshop and research overview that I got to write. Sweden then continued to support the project at uh, at the next stage, which took us to uh, Namibia for the signing or the adoption of the Windhoek Declaration. there, Namibia also decided to take this document to the UN to get it approved as a UN policy on peacekeeping, as they were in the Security Council at this time. In the project, I met Turum for the first time, because Norway was equally concerned with Sweden of the lack of progress in the UN project, and was supporting the project with funding, expertise, and material. Norway was just about to enter the Security Council in January 2001, uh, where he was to be among the first to try to promote the uh, integration and use of the resolution that was to be adopted in October 2000 under Namibian leadership, Resolution 1325. Turin and I then also went on to publish a special issue on gender and peacekeeping in 2001. It therefore feels very fitting to sit here today to present a project funded by the Norwegian Ministry for Foreign Affairs 20 years later, focusing on how elected members can contribute to mainstream the now 10 resolutions on women, peace and security into the council core business. In particular, we will draw on the recent Swedish experiences. The project is the Uppsala and PRIO collaboration, and I've written this project, uh, so this presentation together with Angela Mumba Selstrom and Patty Chang, and the project naturally involves Turen and Peter. So, let me start by saying a few words about how we study elected members' influence on women, peace, and security and the progress in the Council. First of all, what is the UN Security Council? Well, it's the highest decision-making arena internationally, high tempo, high workload, high, harsh climate. What does the council produce? Well, two core outcomes are resolutions and statements. And that might not seem very impressive. In addition, these outcomes are produced through negotiations, so here it's important to remember that an elected member constitutes one out of ten elected Members. In addition, there are five that are in there long term and have a veto the permanent members. This means that each member, but particularly elected Members, will have a limited impact on each issue and problems discussed. Many of these are also stuck in power struggles. But if you manage to suggest and get adopted concrete and action-oriented text in a resolution, then that will have critical effects on the lives of people in conflict areas and on the personnel that the UN deploys around the world. There is always someone on the receiving end of the UN Council's decisions and non-decisions. In the project, we study how an elected member assess opportunities, strategize, maneuver, and fulfill targets. I will try, not try to do justice to the intense two years that Sweden were in the council, but I will just give you some examples of what we can learn from how Sweden acted when they were in there. In terms of opportunities, Sweden entered the council not long after the 15th anniversary. They had cre- this had created openings and momentums on which to build. There was a need for integration, for better information, for improved participation of civil society briefers. For an elected state, credibility also matters for promoting such progress. So in a sense, there's a need to build on one's own profile. Sweden had a long history of working on gender equality, and with the feminist foreign policy, it was credibly evident to external actors that Sweden intended to promote this profile internationally. In terms of forming an overarching strategy that is setting aims and deciding on how to work, Sweden decided on promoting the integration of WPS in core outcomes to strive to make WPS core council business. It was considered important to contribute with both positive and possible ways forward, and in particular on including women. In addition, it was clear that it would be necessary to strive to integrate WPS in Sweden's own core work uh, during the entire term, and to work as one unit and to make decisions in the core decision-making structures by the leadership to live as you preach. In the council, power hierarchies was indeed present, but presenting language on WPS was often possible, although the climate was harshening. Sweden worked to contribute to amending working management men- methods on WPS by improving information through existing institutions and briefers, but also in one's own statements. One conclusion we draw is that Sweden's strategy was predictably unpredictable. It was known what Sweden, that Sweden would bring up WPS, but it was not predictable what they were going to say, as statements were based on context-relevant aspects of WPS. Sweden also sought to mobilize a network to obtain support and critical information uh, that is, in a sense the saying goes, power. So did it work? Well, our data do not permit us to draw uh, causal conclusions. For that, we need longer time series. But what we can say is the overall percentage of resolutions, they did vary. But from the beginning, from the last half of 2017, there was an increase. The category resolution that Sweden also, to a large degree, focused on mandates of peace operations... These are the most discussed category of resolutions and they also contain the largest number of references to WPS. So you can say that Sweden's aim of integration does align with the trajectory of WPS, which is a researcher's way of saying, yes, it seems that it worked. What is then the next step as Norway, Norway prepares to enter the council? Well, in our model, we studied quantity, quality and priority of language on WPS. And the UN Secretary General has outlined the need to move towards more action-oriented, that is, higher quality language in order to ensure impact on the ground, something that the foreign minister also raised uh, at the debate this morning. Because here it does indeed exist a problem. Illustrated by these two graphs, we can see that WPS is still often talked about in very generic or general terms. So there's a need to move towards more action-oriented language. And I very much look forward to seeing what Norway can do about that. So let me therefore end by uh, asking our two panelists uh, one question each. Margot Wallström Could you share with us what you felt was Sweden's space to maneuver in the Council of WPS, particularly if we talk about more challenging contexts such as the Yemen process? And Ine Eriksen Söreide, can you tell us what you see as Norway's main strength strength on WPS that you bring into the Council? And can you give concrete examples of how you plan to build on that in specific processes? Margot Wallström,
3: I first give the floor to you. Thank you very much and uh, first of all, congratulations to uh, Norway and uh, Ine, of course, uh, my former colleague for uh, managing to get a seat on, on the uh, Security Council. Um, that is an important uh, job for, for two years and it's good to be uh, well prepared. Um, I um, I think that this has to do with the issue, how do you measure success? Um, how do you measure um, efforts, uh, the result of the efforts that you, um, that you make? And I think it takes um, uh, proper leadership. I think that we created expectations already by also announcing that we would pursue a feminist foreign policy. And I think that creates a healthy pressure on us to also deliver. And, of course, on the Security Council, I think that um, the room or the space for maneuver, you have to create yourself. We know that it will not be easy with some of the permanent members, the P5 in the Security Council, Uh, We know that this is not a given thing. You will have to fight for it and there will be resistance. And especially since we had also chosen um, a more uh, provocative way of expressing what what we wanted. But they also knew exactly what to expect from, from us. So we consistently asked the question, where are the women? And I have told this story over and over again, that finally um, my ambassador, Olaf Skog, or our ambassador, Olaf Skog, said that in every meeting I'm the one who raised my hand and asks, so where are the women? And in the end, you start to reflect on whether this, what, what ch- change does this make? And then the whole Security Council traveled to Mali. And when they got to Mali women came up to Olof and said thank you very much because of that text in the Security Council for the first time we could meet with the President. We were allowed to have a seat uh, around the the table. So it is important and we focused of course to uh, make sure that there were references to the Women, Peace and Security agenda and in in 2017 for the first time it was in 100% of all the the uh, presidential statements, for example. Um, so the issue was placed on the on the Security Council's agenda. We decided that we would invite <clears throat> women as briefers, so that the information that we achieved also from from women would be included in in uh, the analysis that the Security Council would then uh, make. We also contributed to make sure that sexual Violence was um, became um, a listing criterion for sanctions uh, in in the UN, and that was an important uh, thing, uh, I would say. Um, Of course, uh, we uh, try to make sure that we also in in every country situation and the specific. uh, uh, resolutions, uh, also on peacekeeping, that, that the language on women, peace and security was uh, was there. And to make sure that women were represented both as peacekeepers and in as briefers and in everything that the Security Council does. So that's how we tried to, to measure uh, whether we were making a process. But very much we had to sort of carve out that space uh, and room for manoeuvre um, and when it came to Yemen just to say that um, in in the end this is about the specific country situations or the missions that the UN has. Um, and we still see despite the fact that uh, we have now have a common language on women peace and security and an analysis and an understanding of of the importance of this, when it comes to Libya, Afghanistan, Yemen, where are the women? It's not a given that uh, that they are uh, around the table where negotiations or discussions on on the future of these countries uh, take place, and there is even a risk of a backlash, for example, in Afghanistan, uh, bringing the Taliban's to to uh, decision making. So, so uh, we we insisted also, for example, when the Yemeni parties came to to Sweden to negotiate, we said, well you know you know us, we will insist on seeing also women around the table, and uh, that was extremely difficult. So only one woman um, in the government delegation, and then they solved that uh, sort of challenge by then creating a special advisory group of women. Um, and of course, they came, I would say, almost most... Uh, most well-prepared and uh, contributed. But so there is still a long way before we see uh, women fully represented. Sorry, long answer to, to your... Uh, very, very good one. Good Thank,
1: one. Thank, you. Thank you so much, uh, Margot Wallström. Before we, we give the floor to the Norwegian foreign minister, um, I, I would like for us to take a few steps back um, to your feminist foreign policy. Um, and this was launched in in 2014 and made headways and and a lot of of headlines. Um, um, Can you just remind us a little bit, what what exactly is a feminist foreign policy? What what are the key traits? Can you you reiterate a little bit or or, or remind uh, us a little bit about the feminist foreign policy?
3: Well, it's the realization that more women means more peace. We know from experience that if women are there to negotiate um, peace agreements, then they will have more options on the table to discuss and the peace agreements will last longer. Um, and they are still uh, basically absent in most of the, the peace negotiations and peace agreements. So more women means more peace. Um, and uh, we also see that there is so much of discrimination against women still around the world so to me this belongs to the foreign policy mm-hmm. and that is why uh, we announced that we would pursue a feminist foreign policy in 2014 and of course i um, i real, we realized that it was uh, could create some controversy uh, but i must say that that passed very very quickly i think also if you want to make some kind of mark you also have to be a little bit uh, courageous and you have to choose um, something that makes a difference and we chose a concept that uh, was was different and then it was a chance to to explain that uh, feminism is not something strange it has a very simple explanation that women and men should enjoy the same rights and and obligations and opportunities And then quickly move into making it a practical policy with practical outcomes. So to me, it was about, it was those three R's, you know, rights, representation and resources. So through our embassies around the world, we wanted our diplomats to look at, so do women enjoy and girls enjoy the same rights, legal and human rights? Can they open a bank account, start a business and not being married away uh, as as a child. Can they go to school? All of that. Secondly, are they there in the decision-making context in, in their countries, uh, and how can we help that? Can they do politics? Can they become leaders, and so on? And thirdly, resources. Um, are there resources enough to meet, and resources directed to meeting also the needs of women and girls? Um, and I must say that... Um, an an enormous engagement from from our our diplomats around the world very quickly and also a lot of interest and i'm glad to see that a number of countries have have more than a handful has by now followed our example and it means also that you create the the expectations as we've already said Mm -hmm. Uh, you stick your head out but uh, i think also this is a good way to get results
1: Thank you so much. Now, um, to you, Foreign Minister Eriksson Söreide, just, just to remind you of uh, of Luis's question. She was wondering, um, what is it that Norway brings to the Security Council? Mm. W- what are the main strengths,
4: would you say? Well, well, first and foremost, I have to say, it's so nice to see Margot again. Uh, we haven't seen each other for some time now. And uh, I, I also have to say, again, a warm thank you for the enormous work that Sweden put in for our Security Council candidacy. And we also had the privilege of having one Norwegian diplomat embedded in the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs just to get as much information as possible as to the working methods, especially when it comes to the the priorities in the Security Council for Sweden. Uh, And uh, not only did Sweden campaign for us, but they also gave us a lot of very valuable insights. And I think that those who have praised what Sweden did in the Security Council has really, it, it's a very valid point because I think it stands out even now, uh, a couple of years after uh, Sweden left the Security Council, that what they did were, were actually giving um, a lot of headway to to some of the the topics and women, peace and security being one of them. So we want to kind of take the torch and uh, and work along many of the same lines as sweden did uh, i think the work that you have done is also ad- putting additional focus on where we can work and how we can work i think one of the most important things that we are uh, bringing with us into the council is more than 30 years of practical experience in this field um, you are well aware of much of it and and i think that what this has shown us over over time, just as, as Margot says as well, it has to do with inclusion of women from the beginning to the end of the process. And we've been talking about this earlier on today as well, that it's not enough to include women when you sit around the table. You have to start before the formal processes start. You have to end when the implementation is finished, not when the signing ceremony happens. Uh, we also have to make sure that we when we look into women's participation, do not make it uh, a sideshow to everything else. It's an integrated part of the peace process. And we also have to talk about what kind of role we give women in these negotiations. It's very easy sometimes, I think, to to leave it up to women to deal with the so-called softer issues, not to deal with security, economy, many of the kind of underlying factors of, of conflict. Um, in addition, we also sometimes see women purely from a victim's perspective, whereas, which I think is wrong. I think that women in many contexts are as much community leaders and, and civil society leaders as, as anything else. So we're bringing that practical experience to it. Uh, we are bringing the normative work that we do with others, uh, where we focus very much now on not, only trying to carve out new normative strategies or, or putting new norms to this because we know that this agenda is under a lot of pressure. But what we are focusing on is implementing what we have already agreed on. And there is still a long way to go. And I think that you've seen that in your work as well. Uh, and, and thirdly, I think it is important when we, when we look at this agenda that we, I mean, from, from Norway's perspective, we have an overarching strategy for women, peace, and security. And it's easy to see when you look at our four main priorities for our work in the Security Council, where three of them uh, are directly linked to women, peace, and security. One is peace diplomacy. One is women inclusion and women, peace, and security. And the third one is um, protection of civilians and especially sexual and gender-based violence. And all of these are interlinked. And that is why I think that um, in doing so, we can make a stronger push for the different options that we have in the Security Council. And we have learned so much from Sweden and from, from Margot. And I think it's been really f- wonderful for us to see what a small country can do when you put your mind to it.
1: Mm. I, I would like to ask you the same question as I did to Margot Wallström. Um, we were discussing the, the Swedish feminist foreign policy mm-hmm. and um, gender equality and women's rights are also essential traits or characteristics of Norwegian foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been asked all the time by academics and others, so why don't Norway also label the, the foreign policy feminist like Sweden mm-hmm. has done? Is that a, a deliberate choice from Norway's side?
4: Well, to a certain extent it is, because we do not have the same tradition of of labeling policies as I think many other countries have. That doesn't mean that there is a a big difference or discrepancy in the way we work, the topics we work with. But it's just not very common that we do it that way. Um, And I think to some extent that has to do with our... Well, I I think that the Norwegian foreign policy tradition is very much, I would say, straightforward and uh, very much... um, Well, just do it, in a way. Um, That is not a difference from the Swedish tradition, which is very much the same. But also, uh, traditionally and usually, using labels, which which has a purpose in some senses, uh, for us it's not been the normal case. So that's why we haven't done it. But we haven't done it with any other topics or fields either. So we are just focusing more on actually executing our foreign policy and making sure that the Women, Peace and Security agenda is right at the heart of everything we do.
2: Hmm. I would like to
1: to come back to you, uh, uh, Margot, um, because you gave us a lot of examples of uh, what you did in the Security Council and what you achieved on the Women, Peace and Security uh, agenda. Um, and I'm curious to hear maybe a little bit more, how did you actually do it? The, the, what should I say, the diplomatic handicraft? Because I was also involved in the study together with, with Louise Olson, and, and many of our interviewees were talking about how impressed they were about the handicrafts. Mm. So could you maybe tell us a little bit more about that? How did you actually go about doing what you did while you were on the Security Council?
3: I'm so happy also to see uh, you in. I wish I was there uh, <laughs> instead, <laughs> and uh, we were able to even hug. But um, I, I guess we will. We will. Uh, it will take some time before we're there. And I wish you all the best also from from now on. Um, um, I I want to say first of all that to me it's not a contradiction between announcing a feminist foreign policy and making it very practical. Because to me, it has always been with the aim of being practical. But of course, it is, um, um, I can admit to that, that it is also breaking a a kind of tradition that that was a a Swedish one of not uh, um, giving it a, a label but I thought it was time to give it a label because I think we, we need it we need in this time that we are living now with so much pushback against women's rights we need to, to uh, say it very clearly and I think uh, I know that Norway has such a long experience also from working on this issue so I think you will do Uh, really well and uh, to mention one more thing that we should not forget and that is your experience and how we've been working together on the the networks of women mediators and negotiators because this is also where you have a lot of knowledge and experience and i think this is now spreading so we have many of these networks around the world and uh, we will uh, never again have to hear that there are no women mediators or negotiators The working method was very much to say, let us not be hindered or stopped by the fact that the P5 um, act in a way um, that is very counterproductive to our uh, interests. But rather, why not mobilize and engage the elected 10? And also, we decided that we wanted to see a result. From every meeting of the Security Council, we wanted to see a result. And what is the result? Well, it is a decision on a resolution, or it's a presidential statement, or it's, uh, it's just a, a statement from, you know, that there are different ways for the Security Council to say, this is what we have been discussing. This is the outcome. Because, and also take it, um, even... Um, sometimes better in a closed session because then you can negotiate and you can put pressure on certain members rather than having everything in the in the public eye and then it becomes a theater instead a political theater where some of the big countries just wanted it to make their own show Uh, but to to mobilize the elected 10 was one thing the other was to always have a telephone line open to talk to everybody, not only about them, but with them, about what was on the Security Council's agenda. So it meant more work for our uh, diplomats in, in the UN, but I think it was very, very effective. And also work with civil society. So to uh, to be very open with them and transparent about how we were working and engage also um, civil society representatives, um, but of course it was um, hard work, like uh, <laughs> um, you have never experienced for for many of uh, of our excellent uh, ambassadors and, and diplomats in in uh, New York as well, and uh, for us as political leaders. The,
1: the concept f- feminism or feminist foreign policy. Um, um, is quite controversial in in some parts of the world, did, did but I, you, I don't you? think so much any longer. No. Sorry,
3: I don't think it is so much any longer. I mean, we've had a chance to explain what it stands for. That this is not nothing mysterious or dangerous. It's just an idea of of the fact that women and men should enjoy the same the same rights and, and opportunities and obligations in society. So you just go to the dictionary and look it up. And then every time they ask, uh, you, can, you can give them a proper definition. So I think over time, it quickly sort of became less contentious or, or controversial or, or with a negative connotation. Uh, instead, I saw a lot of curiosity. That when I met with ministers, they would ask, so what is this? What do you mean with this? And we had a chance to to explain. And I think what you then need, if you make such an announcement, then you have to have, well, you, ha- you need clear leadership, of course, but you also need uh, to, to prioritize, to clearly say that, you know, every year we created an action plan also for for the ministry, Um, For example, we said, well, this year we have to do even more on sexual and reproductive health and rights, or economic opportunities, economic empowerment for for women, or electoral help to to women. Um, And you then need, of course, support with uh, uh, tools and skills development and, and advice and also to have focal points at departments and, and embassies. So you have to create a system that will allow this to live on. Uh, also when when a certain person leaves, for example, or, or you have a shift in, in government, uh, you can be sure that there is a structure to back this up.
1: Mm. Uh, Foreign Minister uh, Eriksen Søreide, the the diplomatic practices and methods described by by, um, uh, Margot Wallström right now, I guess it sounds familiar to you. Uh, At least it sounds a bit familiar to me, the way I know the Norwegian um, Foreign Ministry. Is this also how you are planning to work when you now join the the
4: Security Council? Can you tell us a little bit, how, how are you now preparing well, I'm I'm really glad that uh, Margot mentioned this, and I I would right now actually uh, give you a big virtual hug. That's the only thing I think we can do right now. But um, it's really good to to hear you also because I I think that what what uh, is quite special for the Nordic approach in this is that we we take a very practical approach to this. Mm. We're not too much into the big power rivalry. We don't necessarily. Um, have too much to add to that, but we are more practically oriented. And one of the things that we have been doing is to, uh, we're we're right now in the middle of uh, a video conference round with all the members of the Security Council before we enter into the Council on 1st of January. We're using our term as observers as as best as we can. And uh, uh, we also have the aim, and we, we still do, continue the dialogue with the countries outside the Council. What I think has been really interesting to see with the, the Swedish approach is how they have been using the E10 very effectively.
3: Mm.
4: And a lot of people tell me that, oh, why do you want to go into the Security Council now? Everything is in a deadlock because China and the US and Russia, they're blocking everything. But that's not the case. And interestingly enough, four small countries like ours There is a space for for maneuver because we can be more creative and use other methods than some of the bigger countries. We can find that little space that makes it possible, like it was for Sweden, to follow up on Luxembourg and others who have been paving some ground for the cross-border resolution on Syria, which is, in my opinion... Uh, a very, very good piece of diplomatic handicraft. Um, Even though it is a resolution that still today uh, meets a lot of resistance, is going to be renewed every six months and so forth. But the fact that it was possible to actually carve out a resolution, a very practical result-oriented resolution in a political landscape where Syria is maybe the most contagious issue on the Security Council's agenda, where Russia has been putting down a veto now, I think, 13 or 14 times, even on humanitarian issues. I think that speaks to the working methods that we would like to apply also to the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And there are issues where there is a possibility to use that space um, in a different way than many other countries can. And the fact that we also have a very good relation to all the P5 countries, I think that is an important uh, part as well. No one sees us or Sweden as a threat, but they see us as someone who are more... um, more inclined to think about the results than the the political game itself, and that's where I think we we can play a role. And and I think what Margot says about um, also the the closed uh, the closed sessions is really interesting because uh, on the outset you would think that a closed session represents something that is not a positive thing, but in the Security Council context it could be a very positive thing if you combine it, of course, with with uh, open debates and combine it with having civil society to come brief the Security Council on these issues, having the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights brief the the Security Council on a regular basis on, on these issues. If you can combine it, I think you can actually find that some of the closed sessions can be extremely important as kind of working sessions. Now, of course... The Security Council do not have any physical meetings; it's only digital meetings. I don't know how long that will last, but of course that puts strains on on what is possible to do. But we just have to be creative, and that's I think the hallmark of smaller countries is that we we can allow ourselves to use that creativity and and to to find and and actually exploit whatever space for maneuver we can find, however small. Uh, however impossible it looks at the outset. Um, And and I think that's what makes Sweden and hopefully Norway and other smaller countries effective members of the Security Council.
3: Mm -hmm. Yes, please. Because I I couldn't agree more. And I think we have to explain when we took office, when we entered the Security Council, the climate and atmosphere in the security council was an all-time low almost Uh, and of course the the total failure with uh, with syria and being able to agree on on syria was uh, the most uh, striking example of of what it looked like and i think that what ina says is that we are good at using the political tool and diplomacy so we believe in diplomacy and dialogue and uh, our decision also to to make it a priority to have results from every meeting, meaning that in some cases they would reach a resolution even, but in other cases it was just we at least agreed to say the following. We give the president the, uh, of, of the Security Council the role to go out and say we have today agreed to do this or that. And and I th- I think that is um, that helped everybody to it lifted the spirits <laughs> that we were able to agree. And sometimes you have to do it in a closed session, mm-hmm. because you need you need to use the diplomatic pressure to make everybody come on board. Mm-hmm. And I just think in those days that we live in now, this is such an important thing. We have to believe in again in diplomacy and using the political mm-hmm. tools. And it's always about that small opportunity, that window that opens a little bit and, and maybe you can stretch out a, a hand and, and uh, make that opening wider and, and get some results. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And we are known for, for that. Mm-hmm. We are not a threat to anybody, uh, uh, but we, we can be an, an opportunity mm-hmm. to change things around.
1: Definitely, Margaret. Could I just add one yes, thing to please. it. I'm sorry.
4: Yes. <laughs> it, it seems like I'm having Margaret right in front of me, so we're <laughs> discussing, and that's that's good. Um, I think that sometimes we also have to admit, as as small countries, that we bring something to the council that the council needs. Mm. That in in our case, we see very clearly that our experience over thirty years of doing uh, peace reconciliation efforts. The network we have, the way that we work, the fact that we talk to everyone. Um, one example is that doing the, um, during the during the Afghan process right now, I'm talking to the Afghan government. I'm talking to Khalid Sal, but I'm also talking to the Taliban on women's issues. And and for us that is a natural thing for for Sweden as well. For many other countries it's impossible. Mm. So the fact that we bring knowledge, experience, and a network and a way of working that that gives us um, a lot of, I would say, access that many other countries do not have is something that the Council needs in its work. And that is where also smaller countries can play a role, I think. Mm.
1: I I would like to come back to, um, uh, I mean, the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Already when Resolution 1325 was adopted 20 years back, the the agenda was quite broad. Mm. And over the 20 years that have passed, it has grown even more and new topics are added. What, What are the... Priorities for Norway, when you you now enter the Security Council, what are the key topics within the broader women, peace and security agenda
4: that you would put special emphasis on? Well, if there is one key word that I think could in a way sum up uh, our women, peace and security agenda for the Council with, with, as I mentioned, three of the four main priorities has to do with it, it is about inclusion. Inclusion is, I think, the only wise thing to do. Because we know that if peace processes are to be sustainable, uh, if they are to to actually make the best possible benefit of the society in which it shall work, you have to have women along. Mm. And that is not because women are, as I mentioned, always victims or, or that women are the weaker part. On the contrary, I would say that in so many cases, we see that when women take action... Civil society organizations, mediators, networks, and others who can actually play a role, then you then you suddenly have a very very different different angle to a peace process. So inclusion is the key word, and also inclusion in a meaningful way. Um, I, as I mentioned at the outset, I, I very often get provoked when I hear that in a certain uh, negotiation or or a discussion. Um, the men around the table are uh, more or less uh, generous if they offer a seat for a woman. That is not inclusion. Inclusion is about laying out the foundation, the premises. What are we discussing? What kind of results do we want and need as women? How are our needs taken into consideration, just as men's needs are? And and I think the best way to sum it up is, is the... Well, quite famous famous words of of Layma Bowie when when she said that, well, women are not observers to conflict. Why should we be observers to peace and I, And I think that sums it up in a good way that that if you include women, you get much better peace processes, the chance of success is bigger, the chance of viability is greater, and the chance of this trickling down into society. Is, in my opinion, much much stronger, and we see it also from research and your research being being part of that. Mm. Uh, Margot Wallström, um,
1: I was thinking, uh, based on 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 your experience now um, from the Security Council and all your years as foreign minister with the feminist foreign policy, uh, what kind of advice would you like to give? Uh, Eriksson, Søreid, and Norwegian diplomats mm-hmm. uh, when they are now preparing for the Security Council period? And...
3: Well, actually, I don't think Ina needs any advice. I think we, we need to continue to cooperate. And I think it was, it was a great idea to have uh, somebody from norway embedded into and uh, we did we didn't want to send them back you know <laughs> after, afterwards because um, they are so good and and uh, and i think we should continue with that to sometimes borrow somebody from uh, a neighboring country's uh, mfa to to us um no i i think we've given all the Um, the examples of our experience and and maybe some advice from from that point of view. You know uh, the drill uh, by now. And then, well, you have to make room for the unexpected because there will be a crisis or something that you have never seen before. So just think about that. Um, It will take time and it will take a lot of, 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 uh, uh, of energy also to work on those things. Um, and uh, the rest um, really we we have very much the same view on the working methods i i think that what happened with resolution 1325 is that it brought women into sort of the mainstream um, uh, discourse about peace and security Uh, And we also understand better, uh, with the help of of that resolution, sort of the gendered aspects of of peace and security. And also we have common language to discuss them. But actually, if we look at the results, they are rather depressing. Uh, And especially this, uh, this part of 1325, because it had four pillars. It had conflict prevention, protection of women and girls, women's participation in peacemaking and peacebuilding and relief and recovery. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to participation, we are still far from from the target. And I think this is what what needs to be looked at uh, from now on, uh, women's participation. And I think if we set up clear targets for Uh, even numerical targets for women's participation in in peacekeeping or what have you, then we have to make sure that we implement it and and reach them. But um, so far, the results are are not good enough. And I also think one thing for the future is to make sure that we renew the national action plans, that we get all countries to actually make uh, national action plans and update them. So that they cover, for example, also the aspect of, of uh, peace and security and climate, uh, which is one thing that i don 't think we have looked at uh, enough. so these are just a couple of, of the things that uh, and maybe Norway will have to continue to ask the raise their hand and ask the question: where are the women. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I would then like to challenge you, (laughs) Eriksson Zereide, because when Norway is leaving the Security Council at the end of of 2022, Mm. obviously Sweden has already built a legacy. Mm. What kind of legacy would you like to see that
4: Norway has left behind when when you leave? Well, I, I certainly do hope and I also think that we have a fair chance of leaving uh, the Security Council with a legacy that says something about how we're prioritized. Uh, Margot mentioned at the end um, peace um, peace and security versus climate. That is actually our fourth priority yeah. in, in the Council work. And that also goes straight into the women peace and security agenda because women are very often disproportionately affected by the risks that comes with climate change uh, to security. So I think that if we If we succeed in bringing more women to the table, if we succeed in eluding more women as the front runners in many of these processes not only as, as uh, backbenchers or a symbolic uh, number, but, but actually frontrunners in many of these processes. If we are able to lead by example in, in how we compose delegations, how, as I, as I talked about earlier on today, who we quote, who we, who we take a picture of, um, that also has a huge symbolic value. Uh, and, and I do think that people in the Security Council and outside the Security Council expect from us that we will push this agenda forward. Uh, that also means that they expect that we will be annoying sometimes mm-hmm. towards the other countries, and so that's fine. Uh, we, we are fully prepared to play that role. Uh, but that is for us a very important task, to, to actually put, put strength behind our priorities and, and our work in the Council. We fully know, uh, and I think Margot can tell us this better than anyone, we will not succeed in everything we will at all not uh, turn the Security Council upside down. But we do have something that gives us uh, a possibility of doing more than many other countries can in prevention, in inclusion, in participation. And, and I think that um, when, when we look back at, uh, at the Security Council term, uh, <laughs> I think we will probably have experienced more than once that something came along that we didn't expect. But I also think we will have experienced a very, very tough time in trying to push back the pushback on the normative agenda. Mm. So I think we will have to fight on two fronts. One is to implement what we have already decided, which we have, we have a long way to go still before we can say that, yes, we're satisfied. But at the same time, we will have to fight the pushbacks because we see increasingly that many countries many of them permanent members of the Security Council, are the ones who are in the front of trying to weaken the language, undermining the resolution, and really not pushing the agenda forward. So, two things, and uh, we hope that we can set our mark and stamp on that. Time is running
1: fast when we are having fun. (laughs) Uh, Louise, um, before we close, based on what you have been hearing now, are there any final remarks you would like to make or any questions you would like to ask to the foreign minister and to Margot Wallström briefly.
2: (laughs) Very briefly yeah yeah Yeah, I think it's sort of a little bit tying up between where I think you've sort of been been landing in towards the end so if, if we look back before now let us look forward so this month we've seen a lot of different celebrations with the 20th anniversary uh, and as you have also touched on, we've also seen the battle line starting to be drawn where the resistance is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, I think those are exactly around implementation because that's now where we're all focusing. Hopefully with last week's results, we don't have to mention where, maybe we got some more uh, capital backing uh, in in dealing with that. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think we've ever also seen so much Mobilization in so many states, so many states that are becoming clear and actually putting political capital between w- behind WPS. So if you were to, Margot and, and Ine, if you were to really focus on, on one key outcome or takeaway from this 20th anniversary that you think will be the thing that will create momentum for the coming, let's not say 20 years, but at least say two, three years. What would you say is the main takeaway for you and, and for you, Margot? Uh, if you could just sum that up very briefly as an endpoint. Would you like to start? Yeah, well, Margot can start if she, if she likes to.
4: Would you like to start, Margot?
3: I, I'm just reflecting on that, um, on that question because we've heard so many... Big words about thirteen twenty five, mm. and and still, I mean, women are no no um, safer uh, in in war and conflict. There are so few of these peace deals that include women, and so so it's just uh, the difference between uh, words and deeds. Uh, so I, I would like to see more more of of turning this into deeds. I am also more hopeful now because I think with the change of of the American president uh, and the leadership from from the American side, life will be easier also in the Security Council, um, a a little bit easier (laughs) in the Security Council. And then nobody will do it for us, as you said. I mean, we will just have to, we we have to work hard from, from now on Um, and um, uh, we will have to make sure that there are proper plans also for example Mm -hmm. national action plans to back this up and i can only say that i wish you all the best uh, in in the security council and i'm sure that you will do a a marvelous job Uh, and uh, how much i've enjoyed working with you and uh, also seeing your your plans. And I think it's also a very laudable agenda that you have and those priorities. So if we can just see some small moves in the right direction, that will be uh, that will be really good.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would just like to, to very quickly add that I think um, some of the um, main pillars that I think will be important in the years to come is to not only uh, include and and reach out to like-minded countries, because uh, that will be a too narrow group. So we have to reach out to countries where we don't always agree on everything, but where we can find common ground on this. And secondly, again, implementation. Uh, Guterres said not long ago that it's quite amazing that the Women, Peace and Security Agenda in 1325 is something that everyone agrees on, but it meets such a resistance on the ground. Mm. And and that has to do with implementation. Yes. So those two factors I think will be important. On that note, I am afraid that we have to close now.
1: We have come to the end. Um, I would like to thank you Once again, Margot Wallström for taking time to joining us from your home. And thank you, Minister uh, Eriksen Søreide, for joining us. And thank you, Louise, uh, for sharing your reflections from your research project. So thank you all for watching, and stay safe.
0: Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trigg Music by Martin Rennel. Special thanks this week to everyone at Medvin who worked on our November 9th event, and especially to Johanna Rokke-Elfbakken at Prio.